Hi and welcome to episode two of We Are WebVid, a series of podcasts that discuss all things creative from tech to best practice. I'm Neil Bentley, CEO of WebVid, a London-based digital creative agency that works with brands all over the world, events and companies to supercharge content from video and animation to social media, podcasting and print, partnering with brands like AmexGBT, Formula One and The Post Office. In today's episode, well, I threw out a LinkedIn invite to see if there were any creative people out there who would like to tell their story of their journey, uh, especially if they've had a, a change of direction in their careers to follow a passion. And I had lots coming in, but I did see one that took my eye, who's an old friend. And it's a great pleasure to have him on the podcast today, Owen Ryan. Owen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Let's just confirm, this is probably the first time we've spoken in how long? What, 10, 15, 20 years? I reckon so, yeah. Yeah, it must be. It's um, Leeds was the last time we worked together, which was 98 to 2000 for me. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. That that just it, For me, it does seem like yesterday, but also it seems like a long time ago. It, it, that was, I think, probably one of my happiest times. Was it for you? Me too. Yeah, absolutely. It's where it all started for me. It was just great fun. It was like being at school, but fun school. Yeah, well, that's a bit like WebVid. Anyway, <laughs> let's not go on to that. Um, so whereabouts are you dialing in from today? I'm in my home office in the northeast of England, a place called Shotley Bridge, which is uh, on the coast of Northumberland, out in the sticks, uh, and about uh, 15 miles from Newcastle. Fantastic. So let's go back uh, to 98 to 2000, because like you just said, that's where it all started. Um you started in radio, and I've got this right that you, you were copywriting ads at the time, weren't you? I was. I was actually a graphic designer working for a fly fishing company in Rotherham, and I heard an advert for um, a creative writer for the then Kiss, which was changing into Galaxy within a couple of weeks. I applied, got the job, and um, I loved it. Took to it like a duck to water, just absolutely, you know, was thrilled to be in a radio station writing commercials for a, for a living it was it was amazing what kind of sparked your interest because going from a graphic designer to to writing it's two different skills did you have that kind of storytelling writing interest before that yeah i think i've always had it um uh, i remember winning a competition a caption competition it was an adult caption competition in the huddersfield examiner which is where i'm, I'm from originally and i was 12 years old and i won it for a horace and doris uh, sketch that i wrote I got five pounds of my name in the newspaper and I was absolutely thrilled and um, I'd always written, I'd always very good at writing at school and at university as a graphic designer one of my biggest projects that I, I got the, the best mark on was actually designing um, a, a typeface annual um, or catalogue for want of a better word that had images but also words and the words were uh, little stories that I created about different parts of the world and um, it was just something that I found really I could do very well, very naturally. So it was always in the background. Uh, and I wasn't really enjoying the graphic design, the purest uh, imagery. I mean, to be fair, the business I was working for wasn't exactly what I wanted or expected I'd be doing when I left university, fly fishing company in Rotherham. So um, the glamour of, of, or the perceived glamour, which is always the difference between, you know, what people think of radio and what it actually is, was, uh, you know, the, the hook for me was to get in and, even one day, perhaps, you know, go and tell stories on air. So I applied, as I say, and uh, I got the job. And if I'm allowed to say it, my boss at the time, uh, Neil Fairburn, who I'm sure you remember, yeah, I do, said yeah. the, reason, the reason I got it was because I wasn't a wanker and they'd interviewed a lot of wankers. So um, I don't think my creativity came into it at the time. It was just the fact that I was a, a fairly decent bloke, I think. Well, congratulations on not being a wanker. 
that was then. Oh, uh, right you know, now, yeah, it's a totally a different lot of time, thing. A lot of time since then. A lot of people would say that's a very different, <laughs> give me a different title now. Can you remember the first day that you walked into a radio station? Because not a not lot of people actually uh, experience what you and I have experienced over the years. I do, I do. I remember actually going for the interview, my, and my, my first person I met was a girl at the time called Anne Miller, who's now Anne Williams, and she was very flustered. It was the end of the day, and no one had answered the door, and if you, you remember in Leeds, the front door was right at the front of the building, and uh, you know Anne's office was right the way back. So um, by the time she got down, she was pretty fed up that nobody in the programming team, which is very normal as we know now, uh, would answer the door. So that was my first experience of getting in, but my first day... Um, was just uh, out of this world because I had this big. I remember. The, I remember saying to someone, "Where's the Galaxy News Center? Is that like a different building?" And my boss Simon at the time said, "No, come here. I'll show you." Expecting him to take me to a window where I could see an annex, yeah. and there was a little desk in the corner, and there was a guy called Matt McClure sat there, uh, and he said, "That's Matt, and that's the Galaxy News Center." So it was just the first time I realised that. The theatre of the mind versus the reality are two very different things. You definitely had a meteoric rise within radio because you didn't stay just within copywriting and writing ads. Uh, you you grew into one of this country's biggest programme directors in radio. Yeah, it was it was a surprise to me, I have to say. You know, when I walked through the door in, I remember it was April 14th, 1998, it always sticks in my mind, uh, to say, if someone said to me, look, in 15 years' time, you're going to be running... Um, one of the biggest networks in the country with 22 radio stations and potentially you know, upwards of 150 people working for you. On the programming side, because obviously at this time I was kind of writing was attached to the commercial team, and I thought they were absolutely bonkers, but um, uh, a very kind presenter, um, notably you, taught me how to use a desk. Did I? And Yeah, yeah, you won't remember this, but uh, you and Jay Smith actually were very helpful in, in, in teaching me how to use a desk in the Galaxy Studios, and I used to just go in and play, um, I got a few overnight shifts uh, and I enjoyed it for a time, but then I found it was a bit limiting because obviously it was a very tight format. So you're just talking about the next song coming up. And at the time, the rotations were probably each song was coming around every hour and a half. So in a four hour show, it was just getting a little bit mundane. Um, and uh, I then moved to Manchester as a creative manager. And whilst I was there, um, I started to think about the actual mechanics of programming and creativity and how the two could meet. Uh, managed to get myself a job as a deputy program director in Sheffield. Went from there over time to become program director in the Northeast, which is where my connection started. Then to Glasgow uh, for for twelve months. And whilst I was in Glasgow, I got the opportunity to go and work in Australia, which I, you know, I took um, I took my then girlfriend of a few months, who's now my wife, over to Australia. We spent four years there, three years in Sydney. Um, with a flat that overlooked the Opera House and the bridge, which was just absolutely amazing to wake up to that every morning. And then we went to Melbourne for the final year and came back for a job back at Hallam in Sheffield, which was my first sort of deputy role. And I soon, um, you know, showed uh, enough success for them to give me Viking, uh, which is a station in Hull, and uh, Radio Air in Leeds. And for the first time in, um, I think, probably about 10 years, we got all three to number one. Uh, which again then led me further up the field uh, or up the chain into group program director at the time, which became group content director for the Bower City Network. I think it was the Bower Place Network then, but it became the Bower City Network and has grown into what it is now. It's now called the Hits Radio Network, but it was a big beast. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a hell of a job running that thing. See, everybody listening may think, oh, that's that sounds fantastic. But one thing that 
that kind of resonates with me and my journey is everything that you've just said is graft. You have to work at it. I mean, th- that wasn't easy, all that moving around, was it? No, it's 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 very nomadic for a start. You know, it's exciting to move to a new place, but then you have to start again. You have to make new friends. You have to figure out everything works. But, you know, the reality is that, and it's one of the reasons that, you know, we'll come on to why I made the change was, you know, my average day for most of my career was between, you know, 12, well, 10, 12, 13, 14 hours. When mm-hmm. I was in Melbourne, um, I had a... A breakfast show that was in a dire need of change and and and, and growth, and you know my, my my boss turned around and said I was the I was the content director, so I was running the whole station, which was again was a big beast in Melbourne. It's a it's a huge market, and he said I want you to produce breakfast as well as the run the station because it needs a programmer in there. It needs someone to guide them through every link. So I was starting at half past four. Luckily, I live around the corner, so I was up at four, starting at four thirty. Um, the show went live at um, 5.30, although the first half hour was pre-recorded, but we were in studio doing prep. show finished at 9, and then it was off, give them a break to get some breakfast, back into the planning um, office, work for two to three hours, uh, probably two hours. They'd always want to get away within half an hour, but one of the reasons I don't think they particularly liked working with me, <laughs> although I was probably the most successful programme director, ironically, um, was they'd been there for two hours doing planning, Everything was worked through, uh, and then I'd go do my day job, sit at my desk, read all my emails, do my planning meetings for the rest of the content team, do my snoops, air checks, coaching sessions, etc., commercial meetings, um, meetings with my boss, and eventually I'd be leaving the building about six o'clock. Home, food, you know, maybe a yeah. beer, but crash out on the couch and then upstairs to bed for nine o'clock, and it all starts and it goes round and round and round, and you know that was. Um, I think that was probably the hardest 12 months I've done physically. And at the end of it, I was so burnt out. You know, it's a, it's a very, very challenging to live your life in that sort of space. I, I agree. Um, when you moved back, when was it that you, you said to yourself, I now need to make that switch from a, a radio career to something that I do myself and follow my passion and go in a different journey? Well, when I was in Australia, I'd always been, the writing passion continued and I'd, um, I'd started a course at the Writer's Studio in Bronte in Sydney, which is um, a very, um, very highly regarded course on script writing, screenwriting, novel writing. And I did three years with them. Um, and so when I came back, I had this book idea. Um, I didn't do a huge amount of work in the first year, ironically, when I was at Hallam, when I was in one place. But it was when I started travelling with my uh, group role and I was on the train a lot and I was flying a lot of places. Um, I had to be up super early and on trains and I allowed myself an hour every day to just get the story into shape and that was in the background that was kind of like my sanity you know with all the meetings and the you know there was a lot of change in the in in the I was bringing 17 singular stations and individual businesses together into a unit into a network and that was uh, and having been promoted from within there was challenges you know, physical people challenges. There was not physical, but, you know, there were people challenges. There was the physical challenge of getting around to the places. So, you know, that was kind of like my sanity check every day was to do something creative because the first 12 to 18 months was just process. And then we get into some creativity as time moves on and the writing's in the background. And um, it, it was a trail of kind of sad and amazing events that sort of drew me to it. I was... Um, in the space of, I think it was about eight or nine months, my father-in-law, who uh, I adored um, and was a very active man, was suddenly paralysed. 
um, from the waist down, in fact, just higher up. And it was, uh, that was such a life change for my wife and my mother-in-law and the whole wider family is a huge family up here. And, um, and then a few months after that, my son was born, my first child, Vaughan. And, you know, uh, you know, when you have a child, it's like nothing prepares you. There's nothing in the world prepares you for a child. And I yeah, never, I, I never, especially mine. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's a, he's a lad. He so, you know, it's kind of, um, uh, such an absolute superstar, but you know, the, the, the just the challenge of, of taking all that on. Yeah. And, uh, and then, and then, uh, and then my own dad passed away. We were given 12 months to live and two weeks later he died. So, uh, in the lead up in those two weeks of, of, of sort of visiting him uh, in the hospital, it was kind of a midlife crisis, I guess, because the average age of, of, of a, you know, a, a man when they die is kind of 82 and I was 42 and I was looking at my dad and he'd done what I was doing. You know, he was working away. I was, I wasn't home. I wasn't bathing Vaughan. Kim, my wife was doing all the work. And I just thought, God, this is, this is going to kill me. And I'm going to end up, no matter how hard I work, how much money I make, I'm going to end up in the same place as my dad, which is in a hospital, you know, kind of starting to lose the whole point of everything. So I went, I went back to work, had a few months there, there'd been some changes and um, there was a structural review, there was a job for me within it and, uh, and there was also, uh, well, I asked, is there an option to, to leave? And they were a bit surprised and I was like, it just feels like it's 20 years at this and I'm knackered and I'm missing out on all the things that really matter to me. And, you know, being in a position of power and, you know, having a large paycheck is probably not what it, what I thought it was going to be. And actually seeing Vaughan every night and spending time at home and, and being in my, my own bed every night rather than a hotel, it made a difference. So I thought, right, I'm going to take the redundancy. I had a decent package, gave me about a year to myself. And I just thought, right, that's it. Start the book get the book finished, you know, get it finished, get it published. And that was the start of this next chapter. The original book, uh, Media Monster, which I self-published, took 10 years. So it was kind of a continuation. And I submerged myself in, um, I guess, in it for three months through the summer. It was the perfect time to take time out because it was the World Cup. It was that brilliant summer. And, you know, I just needed a rest. So I was writing and I was watching two games of football in the early stages and then going to the pub. <laughs> it was brilliant. I was just like, yeah. what's the, the absolute, you know, antidote to what I'd been going through. Um, and like you, I set up a business to complement it because, you know, as much as I love my writing, I wasn't entirely sure I could make a living out of it straight away. So I set up a coaching uh, business, but kind of left that to the side and didn't really do anything with that, just follow the book. So the original story, they always say, write about what you know. And I had this idea of, it was actually inspired by a guy called Kyle Sandilands, who's a very famous um, radio presenter in Australia, who is hugely talented. Uh, and now I know him a little bit better and I know people have worked with him. It is a bit of an act and actually he's a bit of a sweetheart behind you know, the, 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 the mask. But the mask that he portrays is of this arrogant, uh, difficult, uh, opinionated character. So I wanted to put someone like him into... Uh, a bit of a tricky situation and see how he coped and you know what's the most what's the thing that the rich and the powerful fear losing the most it's the wealth and their power yeah so in this book it was about taking his power away and the way that media works now particularly with social media uh, which when i started writing the book wasn't actually a big issue but when i by the time i got to to sort of culmination it was a mass is what it is now it's huge um was literally trial by media and this guy 
um, his, his name's called Marty Michaels. He's the character in the first book. He wakes up, big radio presenter in the UK, based in Manchester, and uh, he's a bit like a Jeremy Kyle uh, and Jeremy Vine together. It's kind of the best and the worst bits of both. And um, he finds himself in a hotel room with a dead prostitute. He's got no idea where he got there and who the hell she is. And it's you know the police arrive and his whole world crumbles in an instant because he is on the front page of every magazine, every newspaper. You know, every every social media feed, every TV channel is all talking about Marty Michaels as a potential murder suspect, and it follows his journey through through that and his kind of own redemption by realizing actually time, money, you know, power, drugs, drink, broken relationships have all turned him into a bit of a dickhead, and he kind of comes to that realization through the book. So that was how I started with that, and interestingly, um, there's a supporting cast in there which is uh, the, the lead detective, Jane Phillips, and her assistants, Bovolino and Jones. And to me, they became far more interesting as the next chapters, because I figured if I got Marty out of this, I couldn't really put him through it again. And yeah. if he was out solving crimes, he'd end up like Murder, She Wrote. So I thought, right, it's time to let Marty go. Although he does make a cameo in the second book, but only a little cameo. And then Jane Phillips became the main um, the main lead in that. So it's the Jane Phillips series on two. And I'm on to... Um, well, I'm, I'm publishing book two of the Jane Phillips series this month, hopefully. And I start writing the fourth one or the third one um, next week. That's incredible. I mean, you talked about uh, self-publishing the first book. Yeah. How did you find that whole scenario? Because it's a very different world uh, with publishing or media nowadays that, that someone can pick up a pen, write something and then push it out there. It's, a, it's an interesting one when you do it yourself. I mean, um, there is... Uh, I'm published now. I, I picked up a publisher, um, thankfully, and realised how difficult it is to self-publish. And actually, the actual process itself is relatively simple. The formatting is a bit of a pain in the backside, but there are people on a website called Fiverr where you can go and ask them to do formatting for like 30 quid and it's done and it's dead easy and they upload it and it's done. But I spent about a month trying to get this thing to work myself and it was an absolute disaster. Mm. Um, but you can very easily put it on there and Amazon you know, are one of the, the main platforms for doing it. They make it very simple, they have tutorials, they even do like road shows where you can go and figure out how to do it. It is very simple to do it. To succeed at it though, which I find out from my publishers, you need to understand the algorithms because I put Media Monster up and promoted it all over Facebook, all over my friends, you know, as many people as I could possibly get, get your friends and friends of friends to buy it. But all I did was confuse the algorithm because my friends are quite eclectic. I've been around the world. I've done lots of things. They've got different interests. So their buying history through Amazon is very different to what you want the algorithm to believe. So, for example, my mother-in-law is in the Salvation Army. And so she would buy books potentially that uh, has something to do with the army or some of her friends who bought it would be buying books to do with the Salvation Army or songs or uh, hymn books and stuff like that, you know. And... Um, and the algorithm doesn't know who to promote the book to because it's like, well, on one hand, you like thrillers. On another hand, you know, my mum likes gardening. Mm. So um, what you need to do when you're publishing through Amazon is to have a very, very clean feed. So what you want is people who are buying your book are all buying thrillers. And then the algorithm goes, well, I get deadly silence because everyone who bought it so far is a thriller reader. So we could just pump it out to thriller readers. And that's the bit that I didn't I didn't get right when I first did it. So I think I sold about 250 copies of Media Monster through that summer. And I was really disheartened because I just thought it's, it's not going anywhere. My big dream of being a full-time writer, making my millions, you know, sell, sell the rights to the movie and then retire mm. had just gone. And um, 
And it was only when I sort of gave up that all of a sudden I got an email. I remember it was a Friday night, 10 to, 10 to 5, popped up from Brian, my publisher, saying, loved your book. Do you fancy um, joining Incubator Books? We'd like to you know, release it and, and work with you. So having worked with those guys, it is, you know, self-publishing is a very simple thing to do, but it, it's, not as, it's not as easy as you think it will be to, you know, stick it on there and it'll be successful. Um, I think a lot of people tried different ways of, you know, buying lots of books in one go and the algorithms have just picked all that up and washed mm. it out. So it's, um, it's challenging, but it's very liberating because you're not, if you go the other route, which is chasing agents yeah. and publishers, that's soul destroying because out of the 18, 20 pitches I put out, I think I got two responses. And one of those was from a friend of a friend who hated the book. So I was like, hey, thanks. Yeah. So, um, you know, agents just not interested. Okay, so we, we got Media Monster, which is the first book. Can you walk me yeah. through the series of books? And they're all, they're all published by Incubator Books now, are they? So Media Monster became Deadly Secrets. So um, one of the things they told me was the cover for Media Monster and the name didn't really, and it actually looks more like if people have said a radio self-help book because it's got a microphone yeah. on the front. Yeah, so yeah, they yeah. were like, nah, that ain't going to work. So what it needs to look like is a thriller, and a thriller has dark colours with bright colours and type in a certain format. If you go on any any bookstore or any, any website for books, you'll see that you know, there's a kind of theme. So we redesigned it, we changed the name, and we changed some of the characters. They felt it was a bit male heavy um, in, in the first instance, which I think is what you naturally do as a bloke. You kind of write the characters in there. So a male lawyer in the first book becomes a female lawyer. And the um, interestingly, the female prostitute in the second book um, was actually a male prostitute in the first book because I really wanted to ramp up the pressure on Marty because uh, as his character trait, one of his character traits is he's, he's quite right wing and quite bigoted. So for him to be sort of caught with a, a, a you know a male prostitute would be even worse. My publishers were a bit nervous about that with the American market and felt that that was probably a step too far. So, um, but for some reason, it's fine to have a, a female prostitute. But that's kind of that's. The american market so mm. um we changed it changed the cover uh came out and uh, we did a few rewrites just filled in a few of the holes actually that i'd, I'd been worried about and i'd been trying to fix myself for, for five years and and we did a session and sort of tied all that up and then um so we released that and then deadly silence was being written in the background that came out in october um was the um number one release um in america for a period of, of a couple of days uh, which is wow, congratulations. Basically, uh, yes, it was, it was brilliant. It was, um, that wasn't an overall category. I wish it was the, the overall, but it was, within, it, was, I think it was within Mysteries, which is still a, a very strong subcategory. So that was, that was a real buzz for me. Uh, I got to number 10 in America in the, um, in the Mysteries thrillers, um, just in front of Dan Brown. And uh, there was someone else in there, I can't remember, I think it was Patricia Cornwall was in there as well. So that was quite, quite a thrill. Um, and that's, that's kind of leveled out now. Um, How many screenshots have you got of that? Oh my, my I've got a 20, <laughs> I've got a 21 inch Mac and it's just literally every day I was taking shots, screenshots, screenshots, screenshots. So yeah. there's lots of those go on Facebook. Um, and I started tag writing, Dan Brown, uh, tag Dan Brown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, look at me. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he's got like four books out and they're all, or five and six, whatever it is. And they're all multi-million selling didn't matter. It was like mine beat you. Yeah. This too, right. So, um, yeah. So deadly silence came out and, uh, in the background, I was writing deadly waters, which, um, is due as I say out this month. I'm just literally in the middle of doing the final edits. It's been with my editor. It's come back to me. I'm just tidying up a few bits. Um, of the covers, all the artwork's done. I've got to do the back page blurb, and then it goes back to the editor just for a final tidy up, uh, and then it's to the publishers, and then they put it on a blog tour, 
and uh, where bloggers review it over a period of time and uh, and then it goes into into uh, promotion so uh, fingers crossed it'll be uh, another success there is another one coming which is currently called deadly vengeance uh, maybe deadly betrayal we're not entirely sure on the title just yet but my publishers believe that when you're doing a series it's book three that generally starts to see it climb and, and grow into a following because they've got other books to go to so um that'll be out in may june so hopefully this year we'll see the series really start to pick up a big a strong fan base how exciting is this what you're now doing f- like 100 percent of your time because i do see on linkedin that you're helping other businesses with maybe strategies or motivation i see some of the the shares that you're doing is that something that's kind of sitting in the background for you yeah it's um it's kind of uh i'm doing as much writing as i can and and the the business is is there um i wouldn't say just to pay the bills because i actually really enjoy it the stuff that i do i um uh, i sadly um just after i picked up my publishing deal i lost my cousin uh, a, an army veteran to ptsd he'd been in northern ireland and bosnia and um and sadly committed suicide and that led me to um to think about how i could help people in tom's position um you know struggling to a, a, a sort of climatize and assimilate once it left the, the military so last year i spent a lot of time doing pro bono work with um ex-forces and, and working with the uh, the northeast armed forces business forum and the ministry of defense up here in the northeast trying to get funding and and design programs so i did a lot of pilots did a lot of work on creating that and also at the same time i was working with the department of work and pensions uh with 18 to 24s um long-term unemployed uh, in a place called Eston in Middlesbrough, which I'm sure you're familiar with from your time at TFM, and um, and uh, and I'm working on that now as well as a, as a, as another as a as a program that hopefully I can roll out this year. Um, so really, just helping people, um, you know, find out their their real true capacity and and what they're capable of, and and, and businesses, you know, in and around that. One of the veterans that I worked with um, was really struggling and uh, had a dream to set up their own business and. Uh, nine months on, they've gone from zero to employing 13 people and a very, very healthy first year turnover. And I did all the brand work and their business model for them. So again, that was that was a, a freebie just because uh, he was from Yorkshire and I, I met him at one of my seminars and I really liked him and he needed help. So mm. I'm kind of at the minute, I'm balancing it between uh, creative uh, sort of... Uh, creative energy and and supporting other people as well so that's it's a great it's a great way to to earn my living but it's um you know it's challenging because you are working uh with uh, smaller budgets than than the old days Owen, it's been fascinating to to catch up after all these years i just wanted to ask a couple of quick questions before we go what's the most important thing that you've learned on your journey through your career and through life be true to your values be true to your values if you're if you're feeling un, unhappy or upset about something um you know if you're at work and you just can't seem to reconcile yourself with something just check your values if you don't know what they are uh you know you can go on you can go and download them i've got one on my website or it's just a quick simple thing you can go and have a play with that and figure out what your values your core three five values are and, and generally if you're unhappy it's because your core values are in conflict and you know, for me, when I made the change, my values were massively in conflict and I didn't want to live like that. So that's that's the biggest ultimate thing for me is be in line with your values. You'll have a happy life. Who's the person that influenced you the most? Oof, that's a good, good question. Um, I'd probably say my dad and my wife, because my dad was always give it a go. 
my mum as well actually my mum and dad were always like you know go for it um you can always come home you know they've always encouraged me to just give it a go and my wife for really just i mean taking a huge leap of faith leaving behind my old career and saying it does in fact she was the one that really really pushed me and said look I want you home, I want you happy. And I was like, yeah, but the mortgage, the house, the car, Vaughan, the holidays. And she's just like, we'll survive, but we want you here, not mm. not, not a paycheck. So, you know, and, you know, it has been, it's been tough. We've had ups and downs and you go through all kinds of fears. And, though, you know, those three core people have really kept me sane. Sadly, my dad's not here, but I went for a walk this morning and where his ashes are, I stand there and I have a chat and I just close my eyes and think about him and hear him laughing. And um, and that's uh, that, that he's still there. He's still influencing me every day. And I've got a picture of him looking at him on my desk now as a little. I think he's about ten years old. He looks cute as a button in a suit. So, you know, they're my um, they're my big influencers. And the one book we should read, but you can't say your own. <laughs> oh God, that's a good one. That's a good one. What would um, look at, oh. look around at your bookshelf right now? The one that kind of just sticks out that you would read again. Oh well. Uh, the one I'm reading at the minute actually is Billy Connolly's um, uh, Tall Story, Retails and Tall Stories. And uh, you should read that because it'll just make you laugh before you go to sleep, which is a great way to end the day. I've been, my wife has actually turned around to me in bed and I am doubled up in stitches at some of his storytelling. So um, I got it for Christmas from my sister in law and it's uh, absolutely brilliant. I love it. So, where can we find you on socials, Owen? I on social. I uh, on um, I am O M J Ryan on uh, at O M J Ryan on Twitter. Uh, I am Owen Ryan on LinkedIn. I am uh, O M J Ryan on Facebook and O M J Ryan on uh, Instagram as well. Fantastic! Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Can we make sure that we meet in person again, like soon? Yeah, we need to do that, mate, because uh, I follow you closely on, not like in a stalkery way, I promise. But, uh, well, uh, you, you probably you know, do. I do, I do. You've always, ever since those five-a-side days, you see you in well, shorts. I was going to say, difficult. listen, the, 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 the five-a-side days finished about four years ago as well for me. There's no way I'm running out again. Though then again, I never did do a proper run out. I just kind of hung down the wing and hoped that oh. someone would pass it to me. You give yourself, you, you don't, you, you know, you're, you're being unkind on yourself. You were a good player. I used to like having you on my team. <laughs> I used to love you on my team. Okay, yeah, I believe you. Uh, Owen Ryan, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Neil Bentley, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. So that concludes episode two of We Are Webvid. I hope you really enjoyed the last half an hour. This was recorded in our brand new podcast studio here in Oval in London, which you can find more details about at webvid.com. Just go to the pod studio page. You can actually book a podcast in our studio via the book now button. Uh, If you would like to feature on one of our podcasts, uh, maybe you've got a career which has taken a a bit of a different journey. You've got a story to tell. Maybe you've done an amazing project that you would like to tell everybody about or just you're starting up a new business and you want some free advertising. I don't have to know you. It would be really good. You just get in touch. Uh, Simply go through my LinkedIn, search for Neil Bentley and just send me an email in there and we'll hook up. And we'll look forward to speaking to you next time on the WebVid podcast. We are WebVid. Thanks for listening.